You're listening to the Beauty Brain Show, where real scientists answer your beauty questions. And now, here's Randy and Perry. Welcome to the Beauty Brains. I'm Perry Romanowski, and with me as always, Randy Schuler. Hello, Randy. Hi, Perry. Hi, everybody. Yeah. This is uh, episode 154 by my clocking. Uh, you are correct, sir. Yeah, and boy, are my legs tired. <laughs> what, what happened? Well, you know, it was the marathon oh, last weekend. Oh, yeah. yeah but, that was uh... my... 39th marathon. 39 marathons. Wow. How many yeah. hours of running is that? Well, you know, it's uh, if, if it's four times 39, 160 hours approximately. I would guess I've, I've been doing marathons for approximately 160 hours. Wow. Which is almost as long as that we've been recording this show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice way to tie it back to the show. Well, we've got a big show today. Today we're going to have uh, some science stories as as always sure. and we're going to answer a bunch of questions that were sent in including information about uh whether beauty products are poisoning water supplies mm. uh we're also going to be talking about dry oils and other questions that you sent in um but first let's uh, get to some beauty science stories huh yeah uh i'll play the music yeah i'll take the first one um, here's a story about some new technology that's going to help prevent scarring on people who are severely injured. And maybe it'll lead to a cosmetic uh, cream, too. Oh. Turns out a team out of the University of Western Australia have been studying compounds that inhibit an enzyme that enables the cross-linking of collagen. You see, when a scar is formed, uh, this enzyme causes the collagen molecules to form chemical bonds within themselves, and that leads to the scar formation. Oh. So they had this idea that if they could prevent this uh, cross-link bonding, then they could prevent scar formation or improve scars that already exist, right? Interesting. So they're, yeah, so they're working with this pharmaceutical company to, to find compounds that inhibit this enzyme called lysol oxidase or LOX. That's the thing that causes the collagen to cross-link. And one of my, one of my favorite things about this study is that I learned that they have this test called scar in a jar model. <laughs> so it's a lab culture that mimics scar formation in a Petri dish. Oh. Apparently they take, uh, they take skin cells from a, a scarred area and they grow those cells up and those cells are, well, presumably they're, they're defective in that they have this, uh, this LOX enzyme. Right. Um, and so, anyway, they found a few compounds that inhibit the LOX enzyme, and the next step will be to move that technology to test in uh, mice and pig models, hmm. and then if that's successful, move to human trials. And while this technology is being developed for burn victims, uh, there is no reason why it couldn't be used for cosmetic application, too. So, maybe there is help, hope for me to get rid of this disfiguring scar that I got in the middle of my face from that chainsaw incident. I think that actually builds character. I think that's good. <laughs> well, then we had that story where uh, people thought people with scars on their face were uh, better looking or more rugged or something. I think that was episode uh, 58, so go back. <laughs> hey, my only problem with this story uh, is that if this were a horror movie, 
The researchers would like overdose the test subjects with this uh, anti-scarring stuff and it would like over relax their skin and they'd become this like horribly disfigured clay monster that would kill yeah. people on exactly trips. like like the blob like you ever see dark man the blob yeah yeah exactly it'd be a dark it's the dark man scar yeah. removal product uh, but anyway love that movie dark man all right hey uh, you got a story don't you i do you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about this uh this breakthrough scientific study showing that bald guys are less attractive <laughs> we did see that. Well, while we're waiting for the hate mail from that story to flood in, I, I thought I would share another uh, male hair-related story. Apparently, facial hair transplants are on the rise. Really? Yeah. Facial hair transplants? Yeah, so the, the way this works is they, they cut follicles out from the, the back of your scalp. I don't know if it's right. back hair or just, I guess it's just like back of your neck. I don't know. No, that, that's that's the hair that if it grows too long, my wife insists that I go get a haircut that day. She's like, man, get rid of that hair. I, well, okay. Thank you, Mrs. Romanowski, <laughs> for that. Uh, and then they, they transplant those viables, those viable follicles to your face so you get to grow more face hair. Right. These, these, these are surgical procedures. They're up like 200% in the last couple of years. And, I just don't know who's doing this, and it seems to me this appeals to a very small sub-segment of the population, right? It's the, it's the, the guys who, first of all, have trouble growing a beard, and I, I would right. include myself in that population. Secondly, they're the guys who have enough money to actually have a procedure like this done, because <laughs> this isn't cheap. Yeah. And then thirdly, they have to give a crap about it. So I just, are there that many people? I, I just am surprised at this. I, I'm going to hold off on investing in the facial hair transplant clinics for now. Hey, man, I got two words for you. Niche marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly this, uh, a big company wouldn't go after this, but a little company, boy, they'd go right after I that. I guess. Man. I don't know. But it seems like a pretty tiny niche to me. Yeah. You know, it's not a, a tiny niche. Are people with gray hair? Oh, true. Well, I've uh, I saw this study about uh, a gray hair pill hmm. uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Right? Good. Hey, have I, have I ever told you about how I feel about dietary supplements? <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's come up on the show ten or fifteen times. Look, I think. Uh, the way they're regulated in this country is shameful, dangerous, and embarrassing, quite frankly. Now, I'm sure there's some reputable supplement makers who attempt to create quality products, but there are a ton of sketchy manufacturers, you know, who just are trying to scam people and sell products that they either don't reflect what's on the label, they make impossible claims, and or they generally just trick people into buying useless stuff. I'm, I'm talking to you, St. John's Ward. <laughs> That's that's the name of a plant, not a company, uh, so no one could sue us. There. Well, yes, okay. So botanists maybe have a, <laughs> a lawsuit, but I don't know. Well, according to this story, apparently one such company went over the line when they tried to claim that their product could reverse or prevent the formation of gray hair. Yeah, come on. Yeah, a U.S. Uh, district court judge ruled that Kurga Nutraceuticals Corporation violated the law by claiming their gray defense which is a dietary supplement, uh, could reverse and or prevent gray hair. And they were ordered to pay nearly a $400,000 fine Oof. and told to stop making those claims because they're misleading and not supported by scientific evidence. Well, what's really surprising about that is because we see this all the time where usually it's the FDA will slap somebody's hand for making a claim. And usually the worst that happens is you have to stop making that claim. They actually were fined big bucks for this. That's unusual. Yeah, no, I don't know. 
if that's really big bucks though, right? $400,000. I mean, suppose they sold a few million dollars worth of products, you know, 400,000 is just kind of the cost of doing business. Well, I I don't know about that, but it's, it's, my point is you usually don't see a fine at all. So compared to nothing, $400,000 is a lot of money. It's true, but I th- I think what when you do see fines though, it's really a minuscule portion of what their like yearly sales are. And so, what these companies can do is they'll make a crazy claim, they'll make a ton of sales, then they get cracked down by the government. They pay a small fine, keep the profits, and open a new company doing the same mm, thing yeah. until <laughs> it's sort of just uh, that, that's the problem with the regulations of uh, dietary supplement industry in the U.S. and it's. It's ridiculous. I don't know what you can do about it, but uh, maybe give the FDA a little more power. But uh, yeah. I don't know. My my bottom line is, uh, you know, gray hair pills don't work and don't waste your money on them. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, here's a little more of a lighthearted story. Uh, <laughs> you, you know how I stay up uh, late at night looking for beauty science news stories that combine beauty science with what? Comic books. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and I, I found another one. So, yeah, you know, you know the deal with Superman's secret identity. You know, he, he doesn't just wear a mask or something. He, when he switches to Clark Kent, he just puts on a pair of glasses and poof, nobody recognizes him. Now, that, that's pretty ridiculous, right? It is completely ridiculous. And it's the same ridiculous move they pull in Supergirl, incidentally. <laughs> well, you're wrong because science says this really works. What? Um, sort of. So there was a study published in the uh, journal Applied Cognitive Psychology, and it described how a researcher showed panelists pairs of pictures of people, and the people had had glasses and didn't have glasses. So same person with and without glasses. All right. And the panelists were easily able to tell that these were the same people. Uh, like 80% of the panelists could tell right away that they were the same person. But if you, if you mispaired those and you didn't show the glasses, or you showed the glasses on one picture and not the other, it confused people to the point that only 74% of people could tell it was the same person. Now, I, I, I know that's confusing, but that's not the point. All right. The point is that the researcher concluded that glasses are a good disguise and that Clark Kent and Superman did indeed look like two different people. Now, there is a catch because this only worked on people who were strangers to the panelists. So. Lois Lane could probably see through this disguise, but most most average people would be fooled, according to this research study. Wow! What? Except it said, were seventy five percent people were fooled, or seventy five percent people could tell? It. They were I, I think it went from eighty percent could tell down to only seventy four percent could tell. So it wasn't a big difference. Look, just roll with me on this, okay? <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to find any? these studies that link comic books and beauty science that's all i got uh, yeah well it's it's fascinating and i, I think i'm going to start wearing glasses <laughs> like hey wait randy i'm going to put my glasses on can you tell all it's right, still go me? ahead go ahead all uh, right okay huh? perry pa- wait who are you no. <laughs> ah. ah fabulous all right how are we doing on time here we, uh, uh we could move on i think we're moving on to the, the yeah okay cosmetic yeah. questions are you ready because i'm gonna get yeah. ready i'll play the music I am ready for cosmetic questions. All right, here we go. All right, and our first question today comes from Fabby. Hey, you guys. My name is Fabby. I've emailed you guys before, but I do have a question about biodegradable products. 
um, specifically because I have an outdoor shower and it drains into the ground and everybody's telling me I have to have biodegradable shampoo, conditioner, and body wash um, for some reason for the ground. Um, can you explain biodegradable products? It's really hard to find them and actually um, what they're all about and why is, would it be important to use them and what are maybe some pros and cons of that? Um, I'd really be grateful. Okay, um, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Hopefully I hear from you guys. Bye. Well, this is a great question that we'll try to answer, but everyone should recognize that this is not our usual area of expertise. Yeah. We're, we're not environmental chemists or water treatment specialists, but we tried to sort this out the best we could, uh, you know, and if we're not quite right on any of these points, just, you know, someone who knows, please let us know and what yeah. my corrections were needed. Um, incidentally, though, I did take an air chemistry course in college, so I, I feel I know a little bit about air pollution. Yeah, but we're talking about water today, so yeah, that, different, that's, that different is, completely different thing. Good. Nice try. <laughs> well, we've included references wherever possible, so you guys can check our work. And uh, n not that we did the work, but you can check our well, research. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so let's start off by explaining uh, what the term biodegradable means. So what is biodegradable and what, how is it measured? Yeah, so it, it's pretty simple. It really just means that a material can be broken down or decomposed by the action of bacteria, fungi, or other biological processes. And I, uh, I read a great analogy on the Biodegradable Product Institute website. Oh, love that page. Love the, that page. the BPI. Uh, so I'm just going to quote their explanation for biodegradable. It says, if you think of a long string of popcorn on a thread as a polymer that needs to be broken down, then step one, which is fragmentation, happens when that thread is cut randomly into shorter pieces so you have little stretches of popcorn. The second step then, which is biodegradation, occur, biodegradation, I guess, occurs when you get short enough pieces of popcorn for you to eat them and use them as food. So you, you're snipping these long molecules into little pieces, and then the bacteria are eating those little pieces. Right, okay. Well, it's important to break down these ingredients because if they persist in the environment, they may have adverse effects like toxicity, effect on the ozone, bioaccumulation in the food chain, you know, to name just a few. Right. But if an ingredient is biodegradable, it's much less likely to cause any of these problems because it will rapidly break down. Yeah. Now, not every ingredient is a candidate for biodegradation. Bacteria can only feast on carbon-based materials. Yeah. Now, do you, just before you're going to say, or you know, you're going to say organic. I know where you're going with this, right? And then people are going to get confused. So, can you just explain what organic means to a chemist? Right. Organic. The organic chemistry is the study of compounds that have carbon and hydrogen. Well, carbon-based compounds yeah. are essentially organic chemistry. Now, originally organic chemistry, it, it came out of a study because chemists used to believe that living things and non-living things, that there was some special quality of living things that was different than non-living things. But over time, we've discovered that there isn't any real difference between living and non-living. But organic, the, the term organic still persists as referring to uh, compounds that contain carbon and inorganic would be compounds that don't have carbon. Okay, thank you. Now, silicones and other inorganic materials have to be separated and disposed of in a different way, and we'll get to that in a minute. 
So you asked about measuring biodegradability. Uh, you can do that a couple of different ways. Uh, one key factor that is looked at is what they call the DOC, or dissolved organic carbon. Um, my, my favorite degradab biodegradability test, by the way, uh, is the porous pot test, which sounds like something we used to do back in college. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. but this is apparently different because it simulates the effect of aerobic microbactivity um, like you'd find in a wastewater treatment plant. So that's the yeah. porous pot test. Now measuring biodegradability is also complicated because an ingredient can be readily degraded into components, but some of these components may or may not degrade further, right? Dialkyl sulfosusinate is a great example. So you have to consider not only each ingredient, but what it degrades into because an ingredient may be biodegradable, but the parts of it may still persist in the environment and could wreak havoc. Right. That's, that's just one of the reasons this is so complicated. Um, another reason is that uh, time is an important factor when measuring this. So some tests for biodegradability measure how much degrades in 28 days. That seems to be one standard. Yeah. But other tests look at how much degrades in just 10 days. So if you don't know which test method was used with which time factor, you, you may or may not know how biodegradable the material is. Right. And by the way, uh, you'd think that this would be easier for naturally derived ingredients, but actually it can be more difficult to test them because they frequently consist of mixtures of materials compared to the synthetic compounds, which are more purified and therefore more singular. So you know exactly right. where the synthetic ingredients, what they break down to and where they're going. Yeah, natural's a little more confusing. So as we said, this is really quite complicated. Um, you know, frequently testing is done for one ingredient, and then various models are used to predict how similar materials will, will biodegrade. And part of that's because the test's so expensive. I think it's somewhere between like two, three, four thousand dollars for every, you know, chemical that's tested in every formula. So it gets expensive right. if if, yeah. if you're if you're sending a, a, a complete formula out to be tested. So, for example, there's this one model called the BioWin model, and that looks at a combination of peer-reviewed literature government databases, and then the research done by cosmetic ingredient suppliers to predict if a similar ingredient will be biodegradable. Yeah. So clearly, this can be a confusing subject area. Now, how are consumers supposed to know if a product is really biodegradable and if that's even meaningful or not? And the answer is, this is what you've been waiting for. <laughs> it's really hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, as, I, as I'm listening to us talk about this, it is confusing. I mean, we, we had to sort of give this background just to be able to answer Fabi's question, but it's right. it's a complicated area, especially, you know, for people like us who are not experts in it. I can only imagine how our listeners feel at this point. <laughs> Stay with us, everybody. We'll, we'll, we'll make this as clear as possible. Uh, okay, so let's, let's talk about the claims piece. Now, different countries have different requirements for making biodegradable claims. I'll mention a few, but you can go to the BPI website to, to learn more if you're so inclined. Uh, let's start talking about Europe. Now, in the EU, the European Commission has established uh, a voluntary echo label, which allows you to label your product with a flower symbol. Maybe I'll, I'll try and put a link to these symbols Yay. in the show notes. That might help. Um, so if it meets specific requirements, you can put this flower on your package, and then that says to consumers it's biodegradable. Now, their regulations say that each surfactant in the product must be biodegradable, and they've got some specific requirements around how much non-biodegradable materials are allowed in, specifically in shampoos, liquid soaps, and shower products. So the bottom line is for Europe, look for that flower on the label. 
Although I could imagine a less than scrupulous marketer would make a flower similar to that flower and put it on there and make glazer. Well, but then you have the wrath of the European Commission come down on you, and ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, they do not. All right, let's look at what Canada does. Canada uses the famous Mobius loop symbol. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen that, right? Sure, it's the yeah. turn up. You know, it looks like uh, three twisted arrows following one another to form this triangle. Yep. Canada does not allow any degradation products to be harmful to the environment. Okay. They require substantiation of biodegradability, and they require the conditions for biodegradability to be specified. In other words, you can't claim that a product is biodegradable if most of the time it ends up in a landfill and it's not going to degrade anyway. Yeah, that's an important point. It has to... Um the product at the end of its life cycle have, has to experience conditions that will allow those ingredients to be acted upon by microbes and be biodegraded. So, Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, reports of like you can find newspapers, you know, newspapers made out of paper, it's biodegradable. Right. But if you go to a landfill, you can dig up newspapers from the 1950s because yeah. they haven't broken down. Okay, yeah, but, exactly. So. So, all right, let's talk about the U.S. Now, the U.S. doesn't, doesn't have its own official symbol, at least it's not as far as I could tell. Um, although the Biodegradable Product Institute does have a symbol for biodegradability, but then you have to meet their requirements. So that's, that's not a government regulation. That's just, you know, following their protocols. Right. Um, for the most part, you're going to have to rely on the company making the product to specifically tell you that it's biodegradable. Now... These claims in the U.S. are governed by the Federal Trade Commission, and they use three basic guidelines to determine if you can say your product is biodegradable or not. Now, one is you must have, and I quote, competent and reliable scientific evidence that the entire item will break down into elements found in nature within a reasonable period of time. That's the first one. Secondly, solid waste items must break down in one year. All right. And then number three, Claims must be qualified to the point that they're not deceptive. And that, that's kind of what we just talked about, you know, which is similar to the Canadian regulations. So it means you have to be clear about um, how the product biodegrades. And if you're talking about only the formula or the formula in the package. So you can't say this shampoo product is biodegradable if the package isn't. You, know, you have to be clear on which parts will biodegrade and which won't. Right. So is this really more of a marketing story? <laughs> Now, the testing is complicated and the requirements are vague and broad enough that if a company wants to make a claim, they pretty much can, right? Yeah. There's little context or data to know if one product is more biodegradable than another. Uh, no one is really doing competitive product testing, at least that we've seen, right? right. right. Also, this testing is expensive and there's, there's not a lot of benefit unless your positioning is natural, so most brands are not going to do this additional testing. They'll, you know, just look up at supplier data or previously tested versions and make claims based on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't seem like this is that much of a problem. Based on what we've read, it looks like that a lot of the ingredients used in shampoos, conditioners, and body washes are biodegradable, at least to some extent, when they're properly processed. Uh, I found a, a water quality report by Cornell University, I'll put a link in the show notes, and that report says that, quote, most laundry detergents and surfactant-based cleaning products, which include shampoos, are considered safe for both septic systems and groundwater. Uh, and just in case you're worried about things like silicones, the, some of the inorganic materials that Perry mentioned before, 
Here's a report from Dow Corning that says that silicones used in personal care products degrade essentially into silica and carbon dioxide. So it seems like even if products aren't making the claim, they are already degrading to a large extent. Right. So it seems like this is more of a concern for products that can exist in the wild, like sunscreen. Uh, sunscreen ingredients get rinsed directly in the ocean, where it's been found that they're having some uh, adverse effects, especially on coral reefs and things. Yeah, let's be clear. We're talking about products that go down the drain and get processed some in some form. Um, actually, right. we'll, we'll talk about how that works in a second. So you see, tend to see this claim more from brands that are positioned as natural and organic. You'll see, you know, these from you know Avalon Organics, Kiss My Face, Desert Essence, Nature's Gate, you know, Toms of Maine, those products. Yeah, so let's look at a few examples. Um, you know, even a big brand like Garnier is making these claims. For example, for their Pure Clean shampoo, Garnier claims that the product is 92% biodegradable, which is great. But if you look at the ingredients, you see the product is based on standard surfactants like ammonium lauryl sulfate and cocomidal purple betaine. So a lot of shampoos will have similar biodegradability just by using the standard ingredients. Yeah, they're not using a special grade of those surfactants that breaks down more easily. That's just Those are just two of the most common shampoo ingredients in the world. So I would yeah. expect most shampoos will behave similarly. Uh, here's another example from uh, California Baby. They have a baby shampoo that's formulated with uh, glucosides, which are they're less common surfactants, but they're very mild. They're derived from corn. And they just tell us that the product is, quote, extremely biodegradable. So that doesn't really tell us very much. It's kind of like being extremely pregnant, isn't it? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but okay. No, I mean, biodegradable is you either are or you aren't. No, 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 no. There are percentages of biodegradability, and it's also you can biodegrade in, you know, quickly by that 28-day test or, you know, yeah. or, or, or by the 10-day test or slower by the 28-day. So there's lots of factors that go into qualifying biodegradability. It's not just an on or off switch. Okay. Well, then there's this brand from Method that seems to provide the most information. So for their Mickey Mouse body wash and shampoo, they claim the ingredients degrade into simple and benign components in the environment. Method follows the highest technical standard for defining biodegradability, whereby at least 70% of organic ingredients break down within 28 days. This particular product uses baby shampoo types ingredients, you know, cocomidal propyl hydroxysultane and, and things like that. Yeah, so, so I would expect, you know, Johnson & Johnson's baby shampoo would have a similar biodegradable profile. So... And, you know, the reason we're mentioning all these examples, Fabi, is so you get a sense that your regular shampoo is probably just fine in the way you're rinsing it, you know, down your shower drain. But, you know, we're, we're trying to be as detailed as possible. So let's get to this question about, you know, uh, is, is she causing a problem by rinsing all this stuff down her outdoor shower? Um, I mean, essentially, she wants to know if she needs to buy special biodegradable products. Now, for indoor plumbing, we had to talk a little bit about septic systems here quickly. Mm -hmm. For indoor plumbing, wastewater is pumped to a treatment center. For an outdoor shower, it drains into some kind of underground septic system, you know, which is a, a tank buried underneath the ground, right? But either way, it, it works like this. The oil and the fat-based materials, which are most of the surfactants and the conditioning agents, float to the top, and that is called the scum layer. W weren't you in a thrash metal band <laughs> called Scum Layer? <laughs> that was high school. All right. Uh, anyway, these ma these materials, this this scum layer, yeah. that can be treated with bacteria to be broken down. 
Uh, though the water layer in the middle can be drained away from the bottom layer, and the sludge that doesn't degrade can then be sent to a landfill. In the case of water treatment plants, that's what they do. Or it can be pumped out in the case of like a home septic systems. Home septic tanks are supposed to be cleaned out every few years, but we, you know, I don't know if that does happen with yeah. a lot of people, yeah. but well, they're supposed to be. At some point, if you don't clean them out, they back up, so. Right. Um, so, Fabby, if, you, if you've got a septic tank, it doesn't really sound like you need to buy special products at all, because most uh, of the ingredients, or at least many of them, will biodegrade, and the ones that don't will just get pumped out, because, you know, there's a lot of other crap, no pun intended, that goes into a <laughs> septic system. So at some point, there's going to be material that needs to get pumped out. So I don't think your shampoos and conditioners are contributing you know, much more to that. Now, if you don't have a septic tank and you're just letting wastewater drain into your yard, that seems kind of messed up. Maybe you should talk to a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bottom line on this fascinating topic of biodegradability <laughs> is that while there are specific ingredients used in shampoos that don't biodegrade, it appears this isn't really a big problem because the majority of cleansing and conditioning ingredients, which which make up the vast portion of the stuff that gets into the wastewater, uh, they're they're pretty readily degradable. Yeah. So again, I don't think you need to worry about your outdoor shower. Now, if you want to make the planet a better place and you want to reduce stuff that ends up in landfills and so forth, yeah, then you could vote with your dollars and and buy products that make it clear, you know, that they you know that they claim to be biodegradable and maybe adhere to higher standards, like it seems like the method company does. So there's right. nothing wrong with supporting those companies, but probably not an issue with your shower. And it's especially tough to tell in the U.S. because you know there's no universal standard. If enough people do this, it's going to encourage companies to follow stricter standards, like maybe the EU flower, mm -hmm. because that, that'll be where the money is. Yeah. But as always, though, you know, be careful about companies that try to get you spend more money for products just because they have some vague claim about biodegradability. That is an excellent bottom line. All right, Perry, we've got, uh, that was was quite a thorough discussion. We've got time for one more question today. So Only, only one more question? Only one more uh, question. So right. we're, actually, we're going to take uh, the first question that we received through an iTunes review. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, now, now I'm not saying that you should write an iTunes review just to get your question answered on the show. Ah, uh, heck, who am I kidding? That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Please go, just, re just review us on iTunes. It's not that hard. Put a question in. It doesn't matter. And now, incidentally, if you've already reviewed us on iTunes and you want to ask a question, you can send your question to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Very good. Okay. So anyway, this question came from uh, a reviewer, United States 35, who said, can you please talk about this kind of new but not really new anymore trend of dry oils? Dry oils. It seems like such a strange term, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> you know, oils certainly aren't wet. No, not like water, no. But I think what they really mean is more like non-greasy and quick-absorbing oils. Sure. That would be in contrast to things like mineral oil and, you know, most vegetable oils like olive oil. Yeah. That oily feeling is a function of the long carbon chain backbone that's characteristics of, of these types of oils. Again with the carbon. You're just all carbon today. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, you know, dry oil, it's a marketing term. So there's no universal scientific definition. So companies can call just about anything they want a dry oil. Now, typically, these things fall into two categories. Some of them, some of, the, some of these dry oils, are true oils, like squalane, for example, uh, and they just have a, a lighter texture. 
but most of the dry oils aren't technically really oils at all. Really, uh, like sometimes they're silicones, like cyclomethicone, mm-hmm. and sometimes be- they belong to a class of materials known as esters. Now, esters are typically derived from carboxylic acid and an alcohol. It's just a, a reaction of that. Yeah. So they have different properties than just a long chain of carbon atoms with uh, hydrogens attached. Right. And, uh, this essentially means that they're going to have a lighter texture. Right. So in either case, these materials used as dry oils, they they feel like they sink into the skin more quickly and that they don't leave as much of a residue. Now, the trade-off is these dry oils are not as occlusive as traditional oils. So don't think you can get a great moisturizer that's formulated exclusively with dry oils. It's just not going to work the same way. Yeah, exactly. So there you have it. Dry oils, (laughs) mostly a marketing term. All right. Wow, Perry, I, uh, I feel like we talked the hell out of this show. but uh, <laughs> we, we did talk the hell out of this show, didn't we? But i got to ask you, did you read any books this week? You know what? I did read a book, uh, actually. Um, uh, yesterday, I finished my 50th book of the year. Congratulations. That's my goal for the year accomplished. And, and the only way I was able to accomplish that goal was by listening to books rather than actually reading them. There's just no time to sit down and read. But like when I listen to a book, mm-hmm. I can listen while commuting, washing dishes, cutting the grass, or juggling. Running marathons, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, the latest book I listened to was called Ready, Fire, Aim, which is all about being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur and creating a $100 million business from scratch. Hmm. Now, we... we we don't quite make $100 million here at Beauty Brains headquarters yet, do we? Just cut off about six zeros. Okay. Well, if you want to listen to Ready, Fire, Aim and find out how you can create your own $100 million business, then we have a deal for you. We've teamed up with Audible.com, and if you go to the link, audibletrial.com slash beautybrains, you can sign up for a free month and get a free copy of any audio book you want. Now, this could be Ready, Fire, Aim, or our own book, The Beauty Isle Insider. Uh, if you don't like the service after a month, you can cancel and still keep your audiobook. So there's no reason not to try it. Go to audibletrial.com slash beautybrains and sign up today. We'll have a link in the show notes, huh? And we certainly will. Thank you, Perry. All right, everybody, that's it for today's show. So uh, thanks for sticking through this long discussion of biodegradability. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I love biodegradability. I don't, I don't want to say that word ever again. I'm just <laughs> All right. Be biodegradable about your beauty. <laughs> All right, everybody. Until next week, remember what Perry just said. <laughs> Goodbye. Sometimes I despair the world will never see another man.